0: What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place.
1: Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Amelie Urig, a climate change and sustainability advisor and manager. We will talk about her vision for the future of cities, sustainability, city as an organism, differences among the names for climate change, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Amelie Urig is a manager at Point Advisory, a sustainability consultancy headquartered in Melbourne. She has over five years of experience in the climate change and broader sustainability sector and specializes on nature-based solutions for climate mitigation, carbon markets, and carbon accounting. Prior to joining Point Advisory, she worked as a consultant in development cooperation in Indonesia, where she was working on a project on climate and environmental awareness. As a part of her role, she traveled to high schools and educational institutions, facilitating workshops aimed at improving climate literacy and supporting climate action at school. Amélie holds a Master in Environmental Sciences, focusing on climate policies and politics, as well as the role of forests in climate mitigation. As part of her studies, she conducted a qualitative social research project on community-based forest management. She also holds a Bachelor in Geography and Ethnology with a special focus on climate change. Amélie is also a founding member and co-creator at Talking in This Climate, a podcast dedicated to helping listeners to become more mindful about how we communicate climate and environmental issues. And with that, Amélie, welcome to the podcast. As a clarifying question, could you please describe to us what is forest-based climate mitigation? Well, it's a very important, very good question. And it's also a funny one because it's a term that's
0: actually not being used so often. It's more used in academic literature. (laughs) And it describes nature-based solutions for climate mitigation. So anything that has to do with natural ecosystems and us humans restoring or managing them in a sustainable way to mitigate climate change. And because I'm a little bit of a forest and tree enthusiast, I very much focus on forest ecosystems. So when we think about forest-based climate mitigation, that has anything to do with with reforestation, afforestation, the avoidance of clearing or deforesting areas, so anything that preserves and protects and restores native forests—that's kind of what I'm passionate about, and that's why I say forest-based climate
1: <laughs> I didn't know that this is an academic term. What is the laypeople term for this? Do you have more common term?
0: No. <laughs> I think there is one, just because it's so specific, right? And anything that gets like super specific when it comes to a very specific topic, it's not something that people just use in a general conversation. I think it's really just think about a tree hugger <laughs> and the sentiment of, you know, <laughs> that. And that's forest space climate education in my mind, anyways. Obviously, you've got all that climate change stuff in it, but if you love trees, and if you care about climate change, then you do care that forest makes climate change, that makes sense.
1: And you are not saying solving the climate change, you are saying mitigating the climate change. Why?
0: Because I'm a little bit of a pessimist, unfortunately. Uh, a pessimist that, I guess, has a lot of hope still, but I think I've come more and more to terms with the reality that there are solutions to reduce the worst impacts, but we won't be able to solve what's already underway. So the temperature changes and the extreme weather events and so on and so forth that we're experiencing now are actually the effects of, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago or even longer than that because there's a bit of a lagging effect when it comes to climate change. The nature and our natural ecosystems work a little bit slower, I guess, in that instance. So that's why I'm, I'm not... Terming it as the solution, but it is, yeah, if we're thinking about climate change mitigation and nature based solutions, then there's solutions, right? There's things that we can do. And I think it's really, really important when we talk about climate change to focus on the things that we can do and the gains instead of the losses, but also coming to terms with the fact that it's going to be a bit grim, unfortunately. Mm-hmm.
1: Positive. I mean, I am asking for your answers. And (laughs) if this is your view on the world, I cannot argue with that. that. (laughs) I understand where you are coming from, saying that we cannot change it. We can just mitigate the effects of it, basically. So I completely understand that. You also mentioned preserving nature. There was a stand-up comedian in Hungary, and he said that We don't have to preserve nature. Nature will preserve itself. We have to preserve people because due to actions of the past, we will kill all of the people. Mm -hmm. Do we talk about nature preservation or human preservation?
0: It kind of goes hand in hand, right? So we can't exist without nature. And so it's the the chicken and egg thing. What do you do first? Ideally, you do both. (laughs) So, you care about the people around you and those that are far away and those that you don't know. And you care about nature. That, you know, whether that's your local park, whether that's the national park 30 kilometres away, or whether that's the Amazon. In my view, again, like I don't really discriminate <laughs> between, you know, what's close to home and what isn't. So, there's this old view that looked at nature, excluding humans and human interactions with nature. When we thought about nature conservation, I think we can't just look at nature conservation or preservation without thinking about our interaction with nature, because thinking about ecosystem services, water, air, and so on and so forth. So we're part of the system. And so when we preserve nature, we preserve ourselves.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So what does the future of cities mean to you? Future cities. So
0: I thought about this question a little bit and I was like, I don't have answer to that. Mm. I think a lot of the issues that we're facing in society at the moment relate to the fact that we often don't connect with people and with nature to that level that we're used to. So what I'm trying to describe, there's a bit of a disconnect. So I wish the future of sustainable cities is us having solved that (laughs) or addressed it, I suppose. You know, reconnecting with each other, with our neighbourhoods, with our neighbours, with our suburb, with the local creek and kind of live in a balance, if that makes sense. That's sort of the, the way to go. I think we need to really start to care about each other and about nature in order to have a future that works for everyone.
1: So the future which we can have if we have a future should be sustainable according to you. Yes. And what does sustainability mean to you? Sustainability because it's such a big
0: best word, right? And so obviously you're thinking about the triple bottom line. Social, economic, until, But for me, it's more than that. It kind of also includes the traditional meaning of it, something that, you know, is retained over time and kind of replenished. And so instead of just taking, we're giving back as well. Mm-hmm. That's what sustainability means for me. So for me, it's that balance. And I was just saying, coming from a very natural science background, I'm thinking about you already walking along the Mary Creek in Thornbury where I live, but then also think about how I can give back to the Mary Creek. So whether that is is vegetation, joining a volunteer group that does a bit of be work around the creek, or if there's litter, simple things like that, then I can take that responsibility, pick it up, take it home and dispose of it properly. That's like, it's a very simplifying example of how I view sustainability, but it's using a service, but I'm also making sure that that service can be provided and can be enjoyed by everyone else, even after I'm gone.
1: So it's like intergenerational responsibility. Yeah, Mm I would say so. That's really fascinating and amazing (laughs) idea. Additionally, so with this connection to nature, I get the vibe that you are very close to the Aboriginal ideas about how to connect nature. The Aborigines thought that we people are not owners of the land, we are just stewards of the land. Is this connected to your thinking?
0: Yeah, definitely. I recently actually just discovered that because... Maybe the listeners are interested in that, but funny now we actually met when we we're teenagers, and so maybe funny remembers that time. Not sure, but I was always fascinated by nature, and and I had this thing in my mind that everything, whether it's a tree, whether it's a plant, whether it's even if it's a built environment, like if it's a wall. I always viewed it or have been viewing it as something that lives and that needs to be respected. So very personal example. I love cattle toys. It's not like teddy bears and all these kind of things. I've grown out of it a little bit, but <laughs> gladly. But I used to have lots of them in my bed and I would have to say goodnight to each and give them a little goodnight kiss. And I thought if I miss one teddy bear, they would feel bad about it and they would feel left out. And so that's kind of how I the world in general. Like I do, I have a lot of plants at home that I really care about. And sometimes I just... When they look so nice and they grow so well, give them a little hug. I think this is that, that respect, that plays a neutral in my life, respecting that there's not only us, human beings, but there's other living things that we need to show respect to and appreciate. And that's kind of very similar to that idea of stewardship.
1: That's amazing. I completely understand this kind of relationship to the living things. Could you please talk a little bit more about how do you feel this kind of connection to the built environment? Although we can argue about uh, whether cities could be understood as living things, but the buildings themselves, for now, they are just physical, static stuff which are there.
0: So when I think about a city, I think of an organism. I don't necessarily think of it as a collection of concrete blocks, asphalt and bitumen. I used to live in Jakarta, Indonesia for a little while and I like to think of it as a dragon that is very difficult to tame. It's a beast, it's a monster and it's just this, this thing, it's not just a built environment, it's just everything because a city for me is, yeah, the built environment, the nature, the people, the culture and so on and so forth. And I think that combination makes the built environment into something that lives, if that makes sense. Even the history and and your relationship and your experiences, I think it's it's really about also memories. We've recently moved house and and I really loved our old house. I was a bit sad leaving it. It was way too small and had its flaws for sure. But you know, while we were living there, I made sure that we would treat it well. They keep it clean, they doesn't you know get any mold or anything like that, and when you leave it, you kind of have to say goodbye right because you've got that relationship with something that doesn't live per se in like a traditional definition, so that's kind of how I view the built environment I think in concrete or a house is a house until you have a connection with it and then it becomes a thing that's kind of pulsing and providing you with shelter it provides you with services, so there's that respect and a care that that comes with it.
1: You said that you are coming from a pessimistic view. Mm -hmm. Do we have a future if you see the world in a pessimistic way?
0: I think I'm in so far pessimist that I just anticipate the worst and hope for the best. So I'm like, we're doomed. But my heart tells me, no, we'll be fine. We're going to work it out. Well, my brain's like, nah, I've done enough. Like, you know, we're doomed. Because I think we do have a future, it's just, we we'll just have to face, come to terms. I think it's not the phasing, it's coming to terms with the reality of things, you know, being different soon to what we used to. For an example, so at the moment, at the time of this recording, we've got all these major floods up in New South Wales and Queensland, and these are events that had never happened to that extent ever before. So everything is super, super new, right? And I think we just need to acknowledge the fact that we'll have more events like this. We have things that we've never experienced before. And that is really scary, but that's just going to happen. So I think what I'm trying to do is have a preservation uh, making sure that I'm prepared for what's coming and uh, making sure that the people around me are aware of what's coming. And it you know, doesn't have to be as bad and as gloomy as I'm describing it, but it's just, it's that emergency backpack that you prepare in case of bed political situations. It's just that that safety net, even if it's a mental one.
1: What are your three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities?
0: So cities, and especially living here in Australia, and I think we've been very lucky this summer actually in Melbourne because it's uh, La Nina, so it's a little colder, a little wetter at least than sort of our average summer. But what I'm very concerned about is temperature. So how are we going to be dealing with extreme temperature events? What are our housing standards? Are houses up to scratch with rising temperatures? So, for instance, the house I would previously lived in was a classic terrace house, like a Victorian one built in the... 1900s and so not very well insulated the brick walls are amazing because they keep up the heat until they've heated up and then they keep the heat but I think these kind of things we need to think about because we didn't have any air con for instance and so the hot days were just really hot because the house would have heated up during the day or over a couple of days and then it was really difficult to regulate the temperature within the house without air con and so access to these kind of services. Almost access to air conditioning and to heating will be a key thing. I think, especially if we're thinking about the elderly, if we're thinking about birds and other animals, including pets, thinking about days where we potentially aren't able to use public transport or other services because it's just too hot. So I think that's one concern. And then the second is definitely transport. If we're thinking about sustainability, how are we going to tackle? growing cities, growing populations, and everyone being able to get to where they need to get to in a way that is accessible, affordable, but also sustainable, right? I think that's a challenge in itself. Clearly with the pandemic, we've all learned to work from home, I suppose, the majority of people anyways. And so that may be a solution going forward, the flexibility that not only addresses like the emissions associated with employee commuting or traffic jams in the morning or the rush hours, but also will allow us to connect with our families a bit more. Again, coming back to connection with people and nature and even just being able to go for a walk in the morning when you work from home, I think that's quite nice. Anyways, I'm digressing. <laughs> yeah, I think transport is going to be... I see public transport being the solution for... Sustainable transport. But again, we have to think about accessibility. In the specific case of Melbourne, the east west connection is horrible. So, but that means that if you want to connect the east with the west, the west with the east, then how are we going to build that without interrupting a lot of other infrastructure and turning parks and connect corridors upside down? So, I'm thinking specifically about the Northeast Link project that has a really big environmental footprint. That it's meant to address traffic jams and increase the connection. So we have temperature, we have transport, another one on my list, and there's a lot of things that come to my mind. But what I've recently been thinking about is water in Australian context. That's just a resource that we have to be concerned about given that we experience a lot of droughts and you know, water insecurities. When there's bushfires, sometimes that impacts also the water quality. If it's in a water catchment area, it does. And so I think, and a lot of people have been doing that, a lot of council have been thinking about that, but I think we all have to think about how we can adjust our water use, but also how we can use water in a general sense better. So I'm thinking specifically about rainwater harvesting as a solution on an individual household level. So, for flushing your toilet, you don't need to use clean water. It comes down to if you're renting, you have very limited control over a rainwater harvesting system. But I've been thinking about that because I was like, oh, it'd be great if I could harvest some rainwater to water my garden, veggie patches. But because we're renting, I'm like, oh, how can I do that? What's sort of the best solution? That's something I think that we can tackle, that we can address with very quick and easy solutions. But we just need to start doing it
1: more, I think. Not that we haven't, but just doing it more. Then what are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities?
0: Opportunities comes back to what the future of cities mean to me. I think the opportunity to connect with people more, to connect with our cities more now we have the opportunity, you know, enjoy concerts, art exhibitions and so on and so forth more and creating that connection, caring about where we live and how we live. Yeah, that's a big opportunity. And, you know, there's a window of opportunity. Like we can do a lot of different things. We have a lot of technologies at hand that we can apply, that we can improve, that we can research on. There's so much that we can do, right? Like it's amazing if you think about all these brilliant brains out there doing a lot of really important research. Yeah, and I think it's, yeah, there's lots that we can do and explore and, and create a more sustainable life within our cities. Thinking about apartments like the Nightingale ones, these are concepts that are not new, but I think we just need to embrace them a little more and maybe think about how we can implement some of these concepts at houses that already exist that maybe are rentals because of the limited control of the people that live there, what we're probably also missing here is thinking around equity and affordability. It's sustainable. It's got that social aspect to it, right? So, and especially if I'm thinking about housing standards in Australia, having grown up in Germany with really good housing standards, pioneers in passive housing, right? so I constantly just... I get annoyed about the fact that in winter you have to wear your jacket inside the house. I'm like, surely this is not, you know, <laughs> meant to a living. But it is what it is because sometimes like you have, as I said, like all Victorian terrace houses that have never been properly renovated don't have proper insulation or the, the renovations that have been done were, you know, restricted by money, by finances, because it is still quite costly here in Australia to install double-glazed windows and use, like, really nice and environmental-friendly insulation. PV installations, I think, are, are getting cheaper and are much, much more accessible. But I've got two good friends that have renovated their house, yeah, an old Victorian college, and that was just so expensive, so, so expensive, and so it just pushes people to their limits. So we really have to think about how can we make this a little easier on people that want to do the right thing if that makes sense
1: <laughs> it does it does make sense you mentioned feeling responsibility for your own environment and I get that you want to feel that responsibility for your own environment mm-hmm. as a renter how can you do that
0: yeah it's a difficult one right I mean it sounds like a petty example but at our old place we had a lot of succulents in the backyard introduced species and so while succulents are really easy to look after and that's what a lot of renters are looking for like an easy like an easy backyard front yard that you don't necessarily have to water every day that you don't have to mow every second week but it's just you know once you have it it spreads and takes over and it becomes something that's just not part of this native environment then when to do was to rip out this least half of it and replace it with native species and flowering species as well that then benefit australian bees little things like that that are not super super costly because i think I, I bought maybe six plants and then they just multiply by themselves, as plants do. So it just became like this little native garden. It was really great. I felt this <laughs> sense of achievement, which is can definitely recommend. Just seeing that growing and, yeah, getting bigger and bigger and seeing all the bees and birds loving it, you can definitely do that. That doesn't really address climate change. <laughs> but it, you know, supports biodiversity, local biodiversity for sure, and tries to create, well, restart the ship balance, I suppose. Planting trees, I've got a couple of oak trees that are still very, very young and I just don't know what to do with them because you can't plant them in the backyard that doesn't belong to you, right? Especially oaks are big trees. So things like that, that would potentially benefit the property, actually increase its value, depending on the property, right? But ideally, you want to have a couple of trees in your backyard or front yard for shape, for habitat, not only for shape when you're out in the backyard, or front yard, but also it provides or casts potentially a shadow. That's the case that our house at the moment. We've got a big pine tree in front of our west-facing windows, so a lot of the sun that comes across in the afternoon, we're actually protected from that, and it's much cooler that way. Uh, simple things like that. Obviously, <laughs> you know, planting a tree and getting a tree to that size takes a little while, but things like that are fairly simple if you can get the okay from property owner. Then there's simple insulation fixes that you can do. that are not super, super expensive. But again, most of the times, ideally, you need to get approval from the real estate agent or from the owner. Rainwater tanks. Yeah, that's where my mind's been going the past couple of days. I'm like, really want to get a rainwater tank? <laughs> it's been so much rain. It would have been great to harvest that and be able to use that because the summer has been, I mean, it's Nanini, it's a generally higher average rainfall. But actually, in Melbourne, we've had... For a few weeks without rain and so if you would have had a water tank could have used that water to water your garden yeah maybe that's kind of a couple of trivial things to think about because yeah, it's, it's a bit limited in terms of what you can do but actually we do have power so it's kind of like a little bluetooth device that you connect to your electricity reader or meter not right now and it essentially you information about your hotspots, your electricity hotspots in the house. So it's kind of like a Passive, active way of addressing, I guess, your electricity consumption. That's more thinking about climate change than electricity bills. <laughs> but that's things that you can do, finding out what sucks up the most electricity at home. And if you can reduce that, that you know has a positive impact on your bank account, but also has a, a much wider impact than, especially if you think about if it's not only you, it's your neighbour and it's your friend that lives in another neighbourhood and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then there's this whole thing, you know, someone that works in climate change, you know, you can switch to a carbon neutral energy provider or an energy provider that many provides you with renewable energy and so on and so forth, or it's a community-owned energy retailer. There's different ways that you can, in terms of climate change, that you can tackle that in terms of sustainable cities. It's a little bit limited, though, hey, as a renter.
1: Two things. One, you mentioned that succulents are not native. They are not native in Australia?
0: Well, most of the species that we see in people's backyards and frontiers aren't native, no.
1: Oh, wow. And where can someone find information about the native species?
0: So depending on the local council you live in, they have really good information actually online on their websites. I found that really, really surprising. But, yeah, generally you can find out about native vegetation in your local suburb on the council website. And then there's obviously the usual Australian plant guides and so on and so forth. But, yeah, I guess it's you have to be literate in that stuff in the first place, yeah. Sometimes they eat fast growing species and they're easy to maintain and look after. It's just the go-to and, I mean, it's probably... A little bit more expensive and a little bit more time-consuming, potentially. Actually not, no. If you have native species, like Victorian species, they should be fine. When it's really hot, they're fine, Mm. (laughs) most of them. Yeah, they're more adept to our climate. But succulents, I I mean, I'm discriminating here. I do love succulents, but I wish sometimes I would be a bit more of a mix.
1: And the other thing you mentioned is water tank. Well, we don't have a generally again from speaking from
0: the Melbourne perspective, but I don't think there's any regulations or any requirements at all in terms of having a rainwater harvest tank at all. But a lot of people just do it because you essentially just connect a downpipe to a water tank. But you need to have that space. That's it. A lot of the blocks are fairly small and so it's about prioritizing things in the end. There are rentals out there. Um, a few months ago, we looked at one that had football tag and then had several rainwater tanks. And I was like, this is, you know, this is a unique car. You don't really see that. So I guess the main difference is rainwater harvest tanks, generally, depending on what you use them for, they don't really like, require a lot of maintenance. So my partner's family, they're from the WA, Western Australia, and they use rainwater for everything. And so in that case, then you have to have a filter and we have to clean the filter or clean the tank on a fairly regular basis. So I guess there's a difference in scale as well, but it's great if you think about it, that they can fully rely on rainwater throughout the whole year. That's amazing. Yes.
1: Yeah. So we went through your fears and concerns and the opportunities. So what are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities?
0: that we've got a lot of know-how, we've got a lot of technologies at hand, we've um, identified a lot of solutions for problems. It's just about implementing them or finding funding (laughs) to to be able to implement them. So I think often it's not about, oh, how, how can we address a problem or how can we improve a situation? It's more when it comes to executing the idea or implementing an idea, that it becomes challenging for a lot of different reasons. So I definitely see the strength in the knowledge that is out there and the technologies that are out there, the lessons learned that are out there. Yeah, I think that that's the strength really. And again, like emphasizing the fact that there's a lot of research being done. A lot of people are working in this space. There's simple actions that we can take now, that are gonna have an immediate impact I find comfort in that, for sure. I think that's the strength. And there's a big group of people that are working on the right solutions for all of us. I'm less pessimistic on that front. Mm-hmm. I kind of trust that there's organizations like ER Energy Foundation out there, that many others, many, many others that provide support, guidance, and advice to local councils, to residents, and so on and so forth. It's
1: very great to see. So that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah. That's good. All right. And then what is your role in establishing the future of cities?
0: Okay. So here I was talking very broadly about things. Well, my role in my professional life, well, I am a consultant sustainability climate change, but my speciality is a little bit different, I suppose. So in my professional life, I think I very much look at climate mitigation and often don't necessarily look at that on a city level. Well, depends so if we work with local councils, we do. But I think my role is a very personal role. Is It's just how can I as an individual in my personal life contribute to the future of our cities? And again, that's that one thing for me that's about having conversations with people like you talking about things that we are concerned about that are a little bit scary are uncomfortable but then also thinking about the good things the solutions at hand the gains that we can have from taking actions now yeah so it's that conversation but also doing little actions myself so as I said I was actually looking for, because I've recently moved to Thornbury, I was researching some volunteer opportunities in terms of specifically vegetating around the Mary Creek, because I know there's a group out at Edgar's Creek in Coburg that does a lot of revegetation work. And I'd love to find a group like that around right here. have no idea whether it exists. Probably, maybe, who knows? So I think that's kind of the way that I can contribute. And if I think about transport, so one of the concerns that I had. I pretty much ride everywhere, if I can.
1: Please tell me it's a horse. <laughs> <Ish>. <laughs> oh, this is nice.
0: Imagine. No, it's, it's a man horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let <Less> exciting. <laughs> I love my bike, though, it's very old. It does its job. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I enjoy riding. I think that is also the difference that I really do enjoy that time that I can spend with myself. And gladly I'm, I'm able to ride um, along the Mary Creek at least for some of it when I write into work. But especially at the moment, traffic's been so bad that I think, you know, having one less car out there on the road by me riding is a good thing. So, that's kind of my own personal contribution. At least she she made me feel better. I I frame it that way. (laughs) That being said, I do sometimes drive. So yeah, I think often we come across the argument that well, your individual action doesn't really count too much. And I do a lot of carbon accounting, so you know, calculating emissions. And in the bigger scheme of things, yes, whether or not I'm going to drive to the supermarket or not, it's not going to have a material impact of the daily emissions in Melbourne. But if I just look at that, you know, if I just focus on my individual contribution, I'm disregarding all the things that other people are doing, and that then, you know, cumulative can have a very big impact. So I don't think we can dismiss that individual aspect, and I don't think there's another alternative anyway. So in my point of again, like you know, everyone has a right to their own opinions, and I respect that, but I think I would feel bad if I wasn't even trying. So I'll just try and try to do the right thing for the sake of it, whether or not I think it will have a material impact on anything, it doesn't necessarily matter because you're also partly doing it for yourself, right? Yeah, it's not all altruism, right? <laughs> We're all a little bit selfish. You want to feel better. And so sometimes you do good things for yourself.
1: You mentioned that one of your roles is talking about the climate emergency, Before we jump to that question, which is the most accurate name? Climate change, climate emergency, climate catastrophe? It depends. That's probably not the answer that you were hoping for. But
0: in general, when it comes to climate communication or talking about climate change issues, it really depends on your audience. So context is always super, super, super important. What my second concern is when I communicate about climate change is what's potentially make people feel uncomfortable so what are sort of terms that I should be avoiding because they're either too negative or they're too me." that's one and then the second one there is using a term that people understand as well so climate change, unfortunately is a term that I think the majority of people now understand and you can say it and people know exactly what you talk about whether or not it's the best term can be debated but it's certainly one that Yeah, people get, same with global warming. So the Guardian, for instance, they've changed their climate communication style. So the terminology that they're using for consistency, but also based on their understanding of what we should be saying and shouldn't be saying. And I think that's just referring to global warming instead of climate change because it has that negative connotation. And so I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong. It's about communicating in the first place and making sure that everyone still understands what you're talking about. Yeah, so I think nowadays in the Australian context, and again, when I say it all depends and it depends on the context, it also depends on the cultural context, the political context, and know in the U.S., Global warming was very, very political. It's just like sort of the history of terminologies have to be understood as well. At least you have to be mindful of that too. But in the Australian context, I think climate emergency and climate change works. I personally refrain from using what is called alarmist language. So using website, well, emergency, I guess it's a little bit a little bit alarming, but it's also a little bit of a buzzword. So we've heard it a little bit more Mm-hmm. the past years and so I think it's kind of lost its negative effect that it may have on some people and I think it just tries to elevate the urgency behind taking action on climate because you're saying climate catastrophe I wouldn't necessarily use that because you have to be mindful of how that potentially make people feel. And you can convey your message without making people feel very guilty or really alarmed or really distressed. Uh, it's really, really important to be mindful and empathetic when we talk about things like that. And I know I was a little bit laughing when I was talking about ah! <laughs> You know, what's the point. But it's about connecting with people. It's about having conversations and showing respect to one another, whether that's being considered about how we communicate, but also, you know, taking other people's ideas on board as well. I think it's really important. You can disagree, it's fine, but please do not yell at each other <laughs> or you know have a physical alteration because yeah, that's never good. No. <laughs> and so you can agree to disagree, that's fine. And it's okay to leave it at that. You can say, well, okay, I think we disagree, but that's okay. Everyone's got their right to their own opinion and to their thoughts and ideas, and that should be respected. And, you know, if you get to that point, you know, that it's not worth going further necessarily because one way or another someone gets hurt, like emotionally, hopefully not physically.
1: What is the main difference between the age groups you are talking to about climate change? I know that you have taught children about climate emergency and climate change and how to act on it or against it. I know that you are also talking to adults. I would be really interested in how either these two groups or even in the adult phase There are so many different generations.
0: Mm.
1: How do they accept? How do they understand the climate change? What is the difference between children and adults and in the different generations among adults?
0: Mm, that's a very, very good question. So for context, for the listeners, I used to work in my and climate change education for a little while, mainly with young adults and teenagers. And now in my professional life, obviously deal more with adults. So I think now two years ago, for instance, supported a local council with developing their community climate change survey, which was built or developed on the back of their climate emergency declaration. You can actually find that on their website. So that's Princeton City Council. Look it up, got their their survey results online, and we've looked at age groups as well. So it was all about climate change to really try to communicate in a way that is not super confronting. It's informative. Yeah, I guess informative in that sense that we didn't necessarily assume a certain level of climate literacy. We Kind of picked up people where we thought they may be and explained certain concepts, anyways. I'm digressing, but what we found when we looked at the survey results are that generally younger people are much, much more concerned about the impacts of climate change, and that's just that's supported by a research that was done in Australia more broadly, but also internationally. So, generally speaking, you've got a lot of young people that. super super concerned which is fair because it's their future right and interestingly you have a lot of people between 60 and 70 and 80 that are struggling to come to terms with that that they're disagreeing and again it's a generalization right so it's just kind of what we've seen what i've seen from research and the analysis is that i've done and the research and the analysis that other people have done and I've read, and that I think it comes from a point where people feel potentially even responsible, or feel they are being blamed for, you know, what was done when they were young, or what their generation has done, and so it becomes a personal debate, and therefore there's a bit more pushback, and people often tend to blame the government, <laughs> which yeah. I do too. <laughs> I think, yeah, generally, again, just to reiterate my point, younger people more concerned, but that doesn't mean that all the generations are not concerned. We've had a lot of, in the Frankston community, we had a lot of people in their 70s and 80s that uh, were really, really concerned and wanted to do something, you know, to help and support. And we're thinking about their nieces and nephews, about their kids, about future generations, more generally about frankston as a council right so they're concerned about their suburbs their city thinking about yeah the sustainability sustainable cities so i think when we communicate and maybe i should have said that before we always have to think about also what people care about and go and address a topic around about way connect it over something that you and the other person for instance care about let's say the frankston foreshore yeah it's beautiful but with rising sea levels, you're going to lose some of it. And so you can kind of address that the roundabout way. It's like, whoa, I'm that! I go walking there every morning. But I'm really concerned because I've seen the change recently. And then, you know, you can have a conversation like that. So going back to you. <laughs> Actual question. Yeah, younger people are much more concerned. And what I've experienced personally is that there's a lot of thirst and desire to do something about it. And there's a lot of interest in terms of what can be done which is really, really reassuring. And and that sense of community as well. I think people starting to find group and connect with each other and exchange about their thoughts and feelings so about climate change as well. Definitely something to watch because there's a lot of anxiety associated with the uncertainty of our lives more broadly.
1: Emily, thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate it and I don't want to disturb your whole evening. I really highly appreciate your thoughtful answers because these are not easy. And I am really grateful for your work, what you are doing as well. Do you have any closing comments or requests to the audience?
0: Well, closing comments, I suppose, is trying to stay positive uh, amongst all the negative news that is out there. Often it's important when we're surrounded by, by doom and gloom to, you know, live in the present and the now. That's climate change, but that's also borough or there other aspects, pandemics and so on and so forth? And that's kind of a nice little segue to connecting with nature and connecting with people as well. And you can combine that. So And then you can have conversations, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really really important to stay mentally (laughs) resilient by doing the things that we love doing and enjoy doing and enjoying those things with other people that we love that's kind of my bottom line when it gets a little bit rough then I revert to that
1: thank you so much Emily for your time no worries really good to hear from amelie that pessimism can be infused with hope and her actionable tips to be individually more sustainable not to mention her views and experiences about talking and communicating climate change you can find out more about amelie online all the links are in the show notes what was the most interesting part for you What questions did arise regarding Amélie's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the Future for Cities podcast?